looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion what is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Rule, episode 453. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we've got Stephen Saunders, host of the Film Connection and now contributor to our friends over at Film 89, coming back to talk about, I think, what might be the most beloved cult classic ever to come from the British Isles with Nail and I. Are there any close competitors in terms of beloved cult classics? I, mean, I feel like Wicker Man or Naked. I mean, there, there, there are a million to choose from. But with Nail, I feel like that's Britain's like Big Lebowski, Caddyshack, whatever you want to call mm. it, kind of all rolled into one. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair comparison, actually, to be honest. Um, is there a cult British classic on the same level? No, I would say not. I mean, in a completely different genre, I think The Wicker Man is on the same level. Um, the film that's sort of, it's not a cult classic, it's just a classic, but the film that... I find makes the most obvious comparison is train spotting. Gotcha. Um, which has, you know, the hilarious vernacular, um, incredibly indulgent behavior, um, characters who are kind of railing against the uh, you know, the sort of restricted social order around them. Um, but that's a sort of solid gold classic. It's not a cult classic. And it was a hit on initial release as yeah, well. I mean, it conquered Britain and everyone had the soundtrack. So yeah, train spotting absolutely took off. And obviously all those actors and filmmakers, et cetera, have gone on to very big and bright things. Danny Boyle, he's got oh he's got that um that Beatles movie coming out pretty soon. The guy who wakes up in an alternate timeline where the, the Beatles never existed and he becomes his overnight sensation by playing all the songs and so he's got them all memorized. But do you know do you know the film I'm talking about? Yeah. Now now that you've said that, I, I have heard of that, but uh, it's not something that I've been really keeping up with. The, the last thing I knew about Danny Boyle was that he's not directing Bond. That's yeah. uh, the sort of most recent piece of information that, that I have about him. But uh, I mean, he is, again, you know, talk about sort of British filmmakers. He is one of the most talented filmmakers ever to come out of uh, of this country. Um, I had a brief shining moment where he and I made eye contact. I was at a cocktail party at a Telluride Film Festival and I, it was a pretty small room and I saw him and we made eye contact and so I just raised my glass and he gave me a curt little nod. I was like, yeah! Alright! <laughs> <laughs> That's that, awesome. That was, that was about as much of an exchange as I was going to have with him. He was there for Steve Jobs at that time for the film festival. So Right. Yeah, and he's a guy very. That, that's that's a really groovy story. But he's a guy very unlike Bruce Robinson. I mean, the, the thing that's so extraordinary about Widnell and I is, although uh, Bruce Robinson had written movies and had had pretty significant success uh, as a screenwriter, he'd written uh, The Killing Fields in 1984, um, which really, although he'd been writing for a long time before that, I think was his first produced screenplay so it was a sudden uh, shining moment of success for him um but other than that you know he he hadn't directed a movie so to suddenly uh make this film that you know is so extraordinary and so um 
so individual is really, really something special. And also, he never really repeated the success. I, mean, I love how to get ahead in advertising, but it's no with nail. But I guess Charles Lawton would be another example of somebody who's had a career, but suddenly explodes forth with Night of the Hunter and then never bothers to, to do it ever again. But before mm. we get too deep down the rabbit hole, since you're talking about writing, I would like first just a pause and give you a chance to give a shout out to some of your own writing, both the Film 89, as well as a little novel that you wrote as of late. So I, I don't want to overlook the great Stephen Saunders before we start oh, talking about you. the great Bruce Robinson. Well, that's very kind. Uh, that's a comparison where I would fall horribly short. But uh, <laughs> thank you anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I, I so I've started writing for Film 89. Uh, I've just written a few pieces for them. Um, the most recent one was a review of American Gods, uh, uh, the recent season. I was very fortunate to be invited to an early screening. Um, and Ian McShane was, was nice. uh, in attendance. And uh, so... Perhaps uh, maybe it is on a similar scale to Danny Boyle. He was all of about five feet away from me. And uh, I felt very uncomfortable because it's very hard not to make eye contact uh, when when people are that close to you. So that was wonderful. Um, and I hope to, to write many more reviews and maybe some feature articles for them. And I think they're just generally a very high quality website and, and they do reviews. Uh, they've got a solid uh, podcast. They do retrospectives. It's just, it, you know, anyone who's listening to Wrong Reel, I think it's worth checking them out and hopefully yeah, checking out Yeah, we've had Steve Amos and obviously Sky Wingfield, goddamn it. Uh, yeah. like, <laughs> because his name's so unusual. So it always sounds like a superhero to me. It's always like trouble. Like, <laughs> is that his actual name? But yeah, Sky Wingfield. I but I keep meaning to get some, some more Film 89 folks onto Wrong Reel, but we just haven't made it happen. But it's one of those things where when you got your own show, it's like sometimes it's hard to find ways to get make the, the calendars overlap. But I, I guess I've been talking to those guys now for a couple of years, and yeah. they've been on Wrong Reel at least four or five times. Talking about Marvel and Tarantino and Indiana mm -hmm. Jones and Alien and all kinds of different things. So yeah, those guys, they are true blue movie lovers. They are indeed. They are indeed. And uh, yeah, I've got a novel that's available uh, on the uh, Amazon Kindle called Into the Eye of Magic, which is a fantasy novel, um, which I would say is influenced by... Ursula Le Guin, in a way, sort I of. I love Left Hand of Darkness. That was a great one. Wonderful, yeah. But for me, I mean, in terms of the direct influence on on my book, it's more the Earthsea Quartet. Uh, it's not a quartet anymore. It was originally a quartet. Um, so it is about a boy wizard, and I know that's become something of a cliche. Um, it also draws on uh, The Hobbit in the sense that it's a journey novel with one character trying to go from one place to another place, uh, encountering adventures along the way and uh, sort of fulfilling a task. It's amazing how many fantasy novels just follow people going somewhere. I mean, I was, I've been reading uh, the Steven Erickson uh, Models and Book of the Fallen series recently and mm. the first two books, they're both like 900 pages and like the majority of them, people just going somewhere. Or American Gods, which I read uh, last year after seeing uh, the first season, it's people in cars driving places. Like it's just something about fantasy. Indeed. It's all about the journey as opposed to the destination. Exactly. And it also draws to a certain extent on uh, the Narnia Chronicles in that it's a sort of portal novel where someone from our world is drawn into another world. Um, and the reason it's called Into the Hour of Magic is because uh, the, uh, the sun turns into a sort of giant golden eye and the central character is out wandering uh, it, it, one evening feeling very sort of put out. Um, and uh, the, this giant sort of golden eye in the sky fixates him and he finds himself walking towards it. And I think the end of the first chapter is... Uh, you know, the 
the iron shut and he disappears and then he wakes up and finds himself in this strange place and is set upon this strange adventure and uh if that doesn't sell people on the book, I would say to your listeners, there are also um, scantily clad lesbian uh, witch warrior maidens in, my, in the story. My bread and butter. <laughs> but did you ever read uh, Princess of Mars, the Edgar Rice Burroughs? Because I feel like that yeah, is interesting. Yeah, when you have a, someone who basically goes to sleep and wakes up in this otherworldly environment and has an adventure. But mm. I feel like that's a great template for what the kind of adventure you're describing. Yeah, I, I read... Uh, not not in a sort of cynical way, but just for my own enjoyment, I'd read all of the sort of um, the kind of fantasy novels, a lot of them young adult or children's fantasy as well that everybody has read. You know, I just uh, binged them all through and uh, and several years ago, because I actually started writing the book a really long time ago. Um, I, I came up with the, the plot um, and uh, started writing it. And, you know, it's a first novel. So uh, it took me a long time to perfect it i wrote the first draft um and in the words of ernest hemingway first drafts are always shit uh so, so uh, my first draft was shit and uh, i i rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and learned about grammar and punctuation and style and read every sort of book on writing i could i could lay my hands on and uh, eventually having had the thing in a drawer for several years i got it out went through it one more time said that'll do uh got someone to illustrate the cover for me um and uh, now it exists in the world and is there for anyone who wants to read it. Excellent. Yeah, I feel like the genre of fantasy right now is in a very healthy place. It seems like in the 21st century, even as, I mean, I don't think that the era of great big bestsellers from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s will ever come again. But in the 21st century, you've got R. Scott Becker and Steven Erickson and George R. R. Martin and all these people that are really keeping the genre of fantasy, especially grimdark fantasy, alive and well. Mm -hmm. So I feel like... If you are a fan of sword and sorcery, whatever you want to describe it, like now is as good a time to be working in that field as any time in history. And I like how we no longer live completely in the shadow of J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, I, I, I'm fucking obsessed with Tolkien. I've read The Cimmerillion sure. several times. I mean, he is the man. But I don't want to live in an environment where all fantasy flows forth from the world that he created because it's very stately and it's very beautiful. But sometimes mm. I do want the grimdark. Sometimes I do want to have like, you know, I want like French revolution style beheadings and all sorts of horrible shit. Happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And grimdark is a uh, wonderful, beautiful. I think the darkest fantasy out there that I know of though is R. Scott Backer. He's Canadian. He's got mm. seven books so far. Started with the Prince of Nothing trilogy. Now he's in his second apocalypse, like quartet. And he's about to start a third, either like, trilogy or duet but in any case it's the darkest most savage stuff out there but i absolutely love and adore it i uh, i would say the one thing i like about fantasy and i think the reason i was drawn to it is you don't need to know anything to write fantasy i mean you don't need to know any facts you don't need to know anything about the world that you live in because it's all there for you, you can invent everything from the ground up so as long as you've created a world that makes sense that has consistent rules um or even that just feels consistent you don't necessarily need to explain it all um then you're all good and it can be anything at all it, you know as you say we're not limited by the world that sort of tolkien set up it doesn't all need to be you know elves and 
bearded dwarves. It doesn't. We don't need that. You can do anything. And one of the great pleasures for me of of writing a, a fantasy book was getting to make up those rules and getting to invent bizarre creatures. And there's this really strange thing that happens where you realize that you're reaching the edges of your own imagination, that you don't, you can't come up with anything else. And also that you, you write the thing and you create these really strange creatures and strange happenings and strange magics. And then, you know, you go over it again and again, and you start to realize where you got it from. You're like, oh, that's from that thing that I saw that time. And that's right in the back of my mind. And I've taken it and changed it and made it my own. I found that happened quite a lot, but I didn't know that I was, I was doing it. Like there's a, there's a being in there, which is, and I didn't do it on purpose, but which is quite definitely the giant sort of Japanese warrior from Brazil. I've, <laughs> I've written, I've written a <laughs> nice. version of that into the book and I, I didn't do it. On, it's not the same, but there's no question that I was seeing that in my head when I was uh, writing it. And then I realized that a long time after, oh, that's where I got that from. There's a few other bits and pieces like that. But even C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and these guys were obviously being inspired by things they had read. I mean, Tolkien without Norse mythology would have been lost. I mean, the whole idea of like the ring comes from Norse mythology. And so everybody's standing on the shoulders of the storytellers that came before them. Whether you know it or not, yes, yeah. But I also like it when somebody has a different discipline that they use to inform their fantasy. I mean, Arthur Scott Backer, he teaches philosophy. So the book has just got a philosophical ingredient that a lot of fantasy novels lack. And uh, and, uh, Erickson, who I mentioned, who does the Miles on Book of the Fawn series, he is an archaeologist. And so he includes Mm -hmm. a lot of really dense, rich, textured history and backdrop that just stems from the fact that he's got knowledge in that particular field. So I like it when somebody Mm -hmm. can bring in something additional. Obviously, Tolkien, I think he was a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford. So he Mm -hmm. was brilliant at inventing languages. And he would come with these languages and then histories that would support the evolution of those languages. So I'm always a big Mm -hmm. fan of people that find a way to bring in something extra apart from just your traditional generic wizards and warriors, you know, colliding and battling and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And you find out things about yourself. You fi- It's very weird. You find out what your political viewpoints are without knowing that you had them. And, and that's that is displayed in the way that you portray certain things. Um, and you find out things about the way you see the world. I mean, I what I, my book has gone through many, many drafts. And I realized that I was obsessive about describing people's facial expressions and people's gestures and the inflections of their voices. And I realized that I, I'm I look very hard at people and I'm very aware of what people are doing. And then I had to kind of soften all of that because you don't need a paragraph about, you know, every aspect of someone's face while they're delivering a line. It was very weird, very weird. And the, the whole process is a bit like to pull it towards what we're talking about now. It is a bit like directing a movie in the sense that you get to point the camera wherever you want it yeah, to go. You control you the can, locations, you control the town, everything. you control everything. And you don't have to worry about and weather. You don't have to worry and about temperamental actors. <laughs> you are truly omnipotent, omniscient. Like you, you, yeah. you, you know and control everything. So it's got to be very thrilling. Yeah, you dress the sets. You decide how people deliver the lines. You decide what they look like. It, and it's, yeah, I, I don't want to go on about this too much. But yeah, it was, uh, it's a strange and obsessive um experience. Well, I'm a fantasy junkie, so anytime you want to come on Wrong Reel and geek out about some fantasy, I can easily make that happen. I, a light, Any, lifelong anytime. fan. I started playing D&D when I was a very small child, and mm. I pretty much have never let go of fantasy 
ever, and I still read fantasy to this day. And I, uh, because there's so few good fantasy movies, I find that I, I inevitably get drawn to fiction again and again and again because there's just a giant library of great fantasy fiction out there. But sadly, a very short list of great fantasy films. Yeah, they're too. I think there's probably too. They're too densely layered, probably to trans to, to transfer well into a, like a two-hour movie, which is why you end up with you know the Lord of the Rings in its original. Um, film version feeling slightly truncated yeah i mean uh, cut in half i mean <laughs> quite literally yeah. it ends at helm's deep ah uh, but I, I didn't mean that actually yeah, you're right I, I meant the peter jackson one the theatrical versions felt truncated because he was trying to fit so much in um that although they were ma- actually pretty magnificent most fantasy series now if you talk about like robert jordan and his wheel of time series it's like each book's a thousand pages long and they're i think he wrote 10 of them before he died and somebody else finished it for him mm. so like, like i feel like if you look at tolkien now like oh he was actually kind of exercising some economical storytelling compared to some of the people that came that came later who just had yes. zero discipline whatsoever they just go nuts no that's right yeah and obviously we're, we're hoping that george rr R. martin doesn't um Die doesn't tomorrow. Do it. yeah exactly we really don't want that to happen yeah, Although, I think he's 71 72 and obese and likes to eat and likes to drink and he's still got two big whoppers to go i heard a theory recently that he's been rewriting winds of winter so much because he's worried about how in uh, today's overly sensitive times they might react to the usual level of castrations and rapes and torture and mayhem and i think oh, that's dear. a total that's total speculation on the part of the internet but it has been eight years now since the last book but i don't want if we keep talking no. fantasy we'll never we'll never recover <laughs> we'll, never, we'll never get to the movie <laughs> so, let's switch gears i'm a trained actor reduced to the state of a bum There is, you will agree, certain je ne sais quoi, un very special about a firm young carrot. Mm, excuse me. These aren't mine, they belong to him. You're drunk. I assure you I'm not, officer. I've only had a few ales. If I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumour was a birthday present. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. In that case, you're a delightful weekend in the country. Bruce Robinson, prior to Withnail and I, because I feel like so much of his biography, like several years of it, has been condensed into this one magical story from the movie. Who was Bruce Robinson in the 60s? What was his circle? Like, what was the, the environment that produced this storyteller that we're going to be discussing today? Yeah, sure. I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. I mean, he, he wrote a novel uh, called The uh, Peculiar Memories of Thomas Penman. Uh, that's one of his post with nail things because he has done other things. It's important to mention that. Um, and I, I haven't actually read it, but I it's about his very fraught and fractured um, relationship with his uh, father, who wasn't really his father, but he didn't know that till he was got older. And uh, his father, I think, 
beat him pretty relentlessly. He didn't have a very good relationship with his mother either. And so uh, he says that all of his films are about victims. Um, and the victim in Withnail and I is Marwood or I, as he's as we know him. But in the script, if you read it, the characters. And if you look closely, you see Marwood upside down on an envelope at one point. So it's, it's tucked away a very small little detail in the movie. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if you read the script, it's there in black and white. His name is Marwood. So there's that, um, and that's obviously informed um, in, informed uh, his his outlook and uh, the kind of uh, uh, fiction that he has he has written. Um, in the '60s, he was an actor. Uh, he belonged to a school called the uh, Central School of Speech and Drama. Uh, was a completely penniless actor. Um, lived with a group of friends in a flat in Camden. The flat was owned by a guy called David Dundas, who actually did the music for With Nail and I. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Uh, there was another guy in there called Vivian McCarroll, uh, who is the template for With Nail. And he was a hardcore drinker. They were all hardcore drinkers. Um, always said things like, you know, if I was uh, an actor, I'd be, or, you know, I'd be a great actor. If I was a writer, I'd be a fuck sight better than you, but never actually did anything. Um, well, what's that like? It's like, all he did was booze and rant. Like, <laughs> great little <laughs> behind the scenes documentary about the making of Withnail describing yeah. that period. And it's so gross just hearing the conditions of squalor they lived in, how like Bruce Robinson's mattress was in the bathroom and the bathtub was always sloshing. And he's like, it was all green and gruesome. And it was just a disgusting time to be alive. <laughs> like he doesn't paint a very romantic portrait of that period. No. no, but he quite clearly had a good time. There's a there's a book of interviews with him called Smoking in Bed, which covers his entire career. And he says something like, uh, we would literally be laughing, crawling around on our hands and knees, you know. And he said, we we were we were broke but we weren't poor by which he means that his life was rich and full of pleasure um yes and and then he did eventually start working as an actor he was in uh journey's end which is the play that the character marwood uh actually leaves with nail to go and perform in um he was also in franco zeffirelli's romeo and juliet uh, as the character Benvolio. Which gave him um, some inspiration for Uncle Monty. Yes, I don't know how much you want to get into that, but... Uh, I, I he, think it's he, unavoidable, because Monty um, is one of the funniest human beings ever to appear in a movie, but it, the way he persists Marwood is loosely inspired by Zeffirelli's pursuit of Bruce Robinson. Yes, pursuit and capture, I think you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yes, the, the story that Bruce Robinson never completes he never really tells you the whole story and i've heard him tell the story a few different ways but essentially he was he was a very young man i think he was about 18 a very attractive pretty young man and uh, he was hired for for the role of benvolio uh which he later uh renamed bendovolio um <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean that really comes from that whole visconti school of filmmaking and yeah it was a lot of you know very artistic, brilliant gay dudes working together. And yeah, yeah you kind of, you, you knew what you were getting into if you went and hung out with this guys. I don't think he did know what he was get, getting into. To be fair, I think he was a young, naive guy and he gotcha. was invited. He was invited up to his apartment um, and was invited to take a shower. And uh, yeah, there was a, a certain yeah, amount. That's, of, that's when the uh, alarm bell in theory should start to ring. Like, yeah, my, my buddy's 
typically don't invite me over to take to take showers just to like, do hey come over and just chill but yeah I, I, my spider sense would have been tingling at that precise moment unless he was you know not entirely um you know he had to be interested to a degree i'm sure yeah he says not he says he was very naive and uh, it started to happen and then he as i say he never gets to the end of the story he just said i took it but then and then richard e grant in an interview asks for specifics and he won't give them so gotcha. uh yeah he said i got a bit of lipstick um i wonder if that's why there's a little like maybe perhaps revisionist storytelling going on and with now mm. with like marwood putting the chair up against the door which right before like monty comes like crashing through like you know wearing yes. makeup but that's always I mean, I, I, this is one of those movies that if you're not throwing yourself bodily from your couch and like convulsing on the floor, screaming in laughter or something dreadfully wrong. But with the way Monty just comes crashing in, it, it gets me every time. Every time. Yes, uh, boy, boy. Oh, my God. Holy shit. Oh and for people God. don't know the yes. actor we're talking about, he's the uh, the uncle from the, the Harry Potter series, that, that large, heavyset fellow. Rich Griffiths, yeah. Exactly. He's a wonderful actor. So anyway, that happened. And then he, he came back. And he says that the two years after that, um, basically, there were lots of people in the flat and uh, they all gradually filtered out one after another and to, to the point where it was just him and Vivian McCarroll. And it was that period um, that the story covers. But it's a bit cobbled together um, because uh, the actual trip to the Lake District up in the north of England did happen. But it happened with a guy called Michael Feast. And Michael Feast uh, plays... Aaron uh, Greyjoy in Game of Thrones. Okay. Um, now, so he's a, he is a successful actor, but at the time he was a sort of wild man. He was one of the men in the house, in the flat with them. And uh, so they did go on this trip to the Lake District. It was, if anything, worse apparently than than the uh, the sort of adventure that they have in the Lake District within the movie. And um, he, uh, Bruce Robinson tells the story of how, you know, they, they did drive up there in a clapped out old jaguar they crashed the jaguar in a ditch the farmer tried to get the jaguar out of the ditch and ripped the front of the car off <laughs> you know they were uh you know they were sleeping together in a single bed because they were so cold they did have you know the plastic bags on their feet because they didn't have any wellingtons they did smash up the furniture and feed it into the fire because they were just so cold so it's that as well so basically what he's done is he's taken his friend vivian mccarroll and basically put him in the Lake District instead of Michael Feast and just created this whole thing. And then, uh, you know, Frank, Franco Zeffirelli, who he actually refers to as, uh, frankly, Vermicelli. That's his nickname for him. He he writes him into the story as Uncle Monty. So it's Monty, it is, you terrible cunt. I mean, that's, Monty, that's, yeah, that's that must be some rage towards Zeffirelli rising to the surface from way back when. Yes. Yeah. And Richard E. Grant, uh, there's, there's a wonderful interview um uh, that they did uh, quite recently for the 30 years of Withnail. It was at the BFI. It's on YouTube. It's a sort of half an hour interview with them in front of an audience. Um, and Richard E. Grant says, you know, it's a wonderful revenge that uh, that on uh, Franco Zeffirelli's, uh, who's still alive and is in his 90s, on his uh, uh, Wikipedia page, sort of on line three, you know, they, they, they get on to, and, you know, the fact that he was... Uh, lampooned as Uncle Monty and that sort of, you know, he's obviously done all these incredible things and had this um, very uh, impressive career. Um, but actually, the main sort of thrust of his Wikipedia page is the fact that he's Uncle Monty. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh really God. unfortunate for him. Uh, I, don't know, I mean, but at least I because mean, this movie's going to live forever. So people will always yeah. be like, oh, well, who's this Franco Zephyr? Oh, he did Romeo and Juliet. Maybe I should check it out. Yeah, I saw that Romeo and Juliet when I was 14. It was mm -hmm. the first time I ever read Shakespeare. And I have not revisited the film since, so I should uh, I should give it a go. 
stands up actually that the scene the sort of a famous fight and death scene um is really quite impressive there's a lot of good stuff in there and he did the Muggers uh, and hamlet as well correct yeah, he did. I don't think Mel Gibson had any complaints about anything happening behind the scenes, but uh... yeah, that would have been an interesting tussle. But yeah, Mel Gibson was totally in, all in. I remember watching some behind-the-scenes documentary and saying how Mel Gibson could recite the entire play of Hamlet, all five acts, every single character. Yeah. That's dedication. I mean, people can you know say, well, he's just an action guy. He's, he's a lethal weapon. He's Mad Max. But if you can recite the entire play of Hamlet, you are obviously devoted to your craft. And he was very well cast in that role, actually. If you were to sort of uh, pick a Hamlet, I mean, a young Mel Gibson, you, you could do an awful lot worse. Absolutely. Um, but he felt he felt like he hadn't done the role properly. And I believe because the, the film is uh, pretty heavily um, edited from yeah. the, the original script. And so he I think he directed Robert Downey Jr. on the stage because he felt like he hadn't done it properly. And they presumably did a a full rendition of the play. And of course, speaking of Hamlet, I mean, Hamlet is, uh, That's the final line, is like, Bruce, like the dialogue in the movie. Yeah, it is. And it was Bruce Robinson's favorite play. And so that's what why a piece of work is a man. Indeed. Indeed. And in fact, it's, it's rather amusing. I mean, uh, with nail is a 30 year old, slightly more than 30 year old movie now. And I, I read this article about this uh, journalist who went looking for all of the, um, sort of iconic, uh, places from the film and he found crow crag the hovel that the two protagonists uh, visit and it's still there it's being done up uh as a for a, as a holiday cottage but it's still there and as someone had carved that shakespearean soliloquy um onto the building uh which just goes to show uh the extent of people's devotion to the film you know that they would go to the trouble to find it and um you know give it their i don't know sort of knight it in that way how with... much of that speech can you recite <clears throat> can you recite from memory Cause, like the only part that i vaguely kind of know is when like i have of late wherefore no not lost all my mirth and i think i might even be a few words off on that but the rest is absolutely stunning beautiful stuff but it's some of my favorite shakespeare on film even if it's only for a few brief minutes of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. It's the most excellent canopy, the air. Look you, this brave or hanging firmament. This majestic old roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. How like an angel in apprehension. How like a god. The beauty of the world. Pagan of animals. Yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, no women neither. No women neither. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I mean, it has to how much of how much of it I can. I can recite no very little. I, I know that he invented 
or adjusted the last line because he says something like, you know, I, 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 I don't love anybody, essentially, is the, the thrust of it. And then he says, no, nor women, neither. No, nor women, neither. And I think that he added those lines. Oh, actually, well, wanted... the last line, I've got a, a mm. copy and paste. And it's, okay. uh, you know, it says, man delights not me, no, nor woman, neither. Woman. And what's missing there is that he's looking at two other people and says, though by your smiling, you seem to say so, because he comes out of his soliloquy and goes back into dialogue with other characters. But usually mm. if somebody's just performing it as a piece, like kind of a one-man show, they leave mm. that last sentence out because they don't have other actors. It doesn't make any sense oh. if you're just doing it in isolation, but it does make sense mm. to include that last line if you're continuing with the rest of the scene. Uh, so, but he changed woman to women then. That's that's the, that's the change. Gotcha, okay. It's a very small change. But he said something like he, he wanted it to be that... With uh, with Nail loves nobody, um, and I th there's a great line from uh, the book Smoking in Bed where he says uh, he doesn't love he couldn't make love to a man, a woman, or a fucking elephant. Basically, <laughs> he's, he's he's saying that this guy doesn't love anybody but himself, and that's his f fatal flaw, as I suppose, as a human being, and the reason why his relationship with Marwood ultimately breaks down. Yeah, well, this movie, I feel like it's it. I'm Wondering how we should first kind of start to crack it open because as, as of, yeah. I think I've seen now three or four times, but every time I mm. watch it, it grows in my estimation. Yeah. And it seems like much more than this hysterical, infinitely quotable comedy, it's a movie about the end of an era. And it basically, it's, this is the end of the 60s crashing down right before the wave pulls back. And uh, you know what's, what's that line where there are going to be a lot of refugees, as they say. Yes. And it's just such an ominous line, but you really feel... Like this era of flower power and hippies and drug culture and Manson killings in Vietnam. This movie really feels like a fitting kind of, um, they're kind of carving the gravestone on the 60s in a lot of ways. Mm. But goddamn, you really feel the 60s live again while you're watching it. I mean, my, my, I think my favorite shot the entire movie is when they're about to leave to go out to the country and you're hearing all on mm. the watchtower and yeah. Marwood just flips his, his shades down and apparently... Mm. To his friends, Bruce Robinson's friends, they say, look, that is Bruce Robinson at that time. You know, Mr. Mm. Cool thinks he's a badass. Mm. And you're seeing like wrecking balls knocking down old buildings. You really mm. feel like he's carving the gravestone on a particular chapter in British, in British history. I think that's pretty accurate, actually. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. The film has a timeless quality. You're, you're right. It does capture the 60s. But, it, but the thing that they say about it, and I agree, is it could almost have been made at any time. In, and the reason for that is because it was written as a novel in the 60s and then converted into a screenplay in the 80s and made into a film in the 80s uh, and then um, actually became a cult classic in this country in the 90s because it wasn't that successful when it was originally released um, and then and then eventually it was sort of picked up on VHS it got a big re-release this is how I remember finding out about the film in the uh, mid to late 90s was uh, that it, uh, due to like Janus Films or Criterion or anything like that or was it just a normal video VHS release so well first of all I, it became a cult classic I think on VHS it just people just found it um, and then I just became aware of it seeing it in Empire magazine. I don't know whether you get Empire over we there. We do, yeah. It's, it's, I love, I love yeah. Empire, yeah. Sure, yeah. I just remember reading about it in Empire. It must have been in the mid-90s. And, and a friend saying to me, have you seen this film? It's absolutely incredible. And then watching the film and um, partway through, I think it's the bit where he starts shooting up the the uh, sort of river rapids with a shotgun. <laughs> he's, and he's, realizing got, he's hunting this, for fish with a shotgun? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And uh, I've, I've felt that way ever since. Um, and then... I. It, it, yeah, it, it got given 
because it had become a cult classic but wasn't initially that successful they decided to stick it back in the cinemas and bruce robinson said i didn't see sort of sent one from the re-release he doesn't have any ownership over the film so he's a little bit embittered about it um but that was the thing that completely sort of solidified its reputation and, and that's when i became aware of it so it, it has this timeless quality um and i mean the characters with the exception i think of danny the dealer um who's this uh, sort of ridiculous um you know sort of raven haired sunglass wearing a wise um, fool as they say a wise fool. <laughs> yeah well except for him and the music and uh, you see a lots of vehicles from the 60s the, the film is almost timeless in the sense that you know um with nails uh his uh, attire is very classical you know he says i'm wearing a suit from savile row um, Uncle Monty could be a character from the 20s or the 30s. But it does capture that sense of something coming to an end. It definitely does. And you're right, the wrecking ball smashing down the building, um, the sort of apocalyptic Jimi Hendrix music you know, oh, all along. It just the- gives me goosebumps. Yeah. I love it. It is. It is. It is extraordinary. Um, and also, but there's there are the, the quotations from Baudelaire. You know, there's no there's no beauty without decay. Um, so it's about the end of the 60s. It's about the end of this relationship. Um, and one of the smartest things I've come across about it is it's like an elegy for the end of an era within British culture. So there are all these things like, you know, the very um, the, the, the very sort of fragile upper class women in the tea shop that get insulted, um, you know, the very backward sort of rural life, um, you know, uh, the sort of Noel Coward-esque uh, behavior of Monty. It's a feeling that all of those things are sort of sliding into history. So it's not it is about the 60s coming to an end, but it's about a lot of things coming to an end. And I think the reason why the film is so great and the reason it bears rewatching and rewatching it, it, I mean, it's hilariously funny. But when you get past that and you watch it again and again and you, you know, you just start thinking about what you're watching, it's got this poignant sense of loss and betrayal um running all the way through it which is at its you know finest point is about this relationship just uh crumbling and and one character refusing to let go of his outrageous behavior and the other character realizing that in order to succeed in the world he's gonna have to get a haircut he's got to get a haircut and he's got to get a job you know and, and there's that fantastic line about the 60s from uh danny the dealer and i'm gonna paraphrase this i'm not gonna get it right but where he says, uh, you know, it's like a, a balloon and, and you've got to decide whether you want to let go or whether you hang on <laughs> and you just keep going higher and higher and higher. And Marwood has let go and the rest of the world has let go. And uh, poor old Widner is clinging on for dear life. But eventually he's going to fall. Um, and of course, Vivian McCarroll, who the character is based on, uh, never escaped the 60s. Apparently, when Bruce Robinson would meet met him in the 80s and the 90s, he has passed away now. Um, he would still be listening to the Rolling Stones. He would still be dressed the same way. That's always um, so depressing when you bump into an old friend that you haven't seen in a long time and they're still listening to the same music. It yeah. just gives you like an evil chill. It reminds me of like, uh, like The World's End, the Edgar Wright film, when they get into his car and it's the same car, the same cassettes, the same everything back when yeah. they were kids and they all kind of look at yeah. each other like, oh dear God, like he is a time capsule from our youth. But yeah, so it's the whole thing about you've got to let go ultimately and uh, sort of everyone let go but with Nail and, uh, you know, the real character 
drank himself to death, which is um, what presumably is going to happen to the, the with nail of the film, you know, and, and, and again, one of the, one of the things that people say is so appealing about the film. And I agree is that, you know, we all hope uh, that we can achieve something when we're young and that we will succeed and that we will escape. And Bruce Robinson lived that life and he did escape. And we know he escaped because we're watching his life in a film that's become a classic. And so we all hope that we can escape from the filth and the squalor and the self-indulgence and the madness and turn into Bruce Robinson, who has maintained, I would say, a reasonable share of madness and filth and squalor, but has had a very successful life. And, and he career. remains fascinating in interviews when he's yeah. just sitting there sipping on red wine, smoking cigarettes. He's a great raconteur. He's a great storyteller. Such he's clearly got all of his talent and his marbles still intact, whereas he's, he sounds like poor Vivian McCarroll just was uh, just yeah like the, he, he, the wave crashed on the rocks and left him for dead and yeah he never really uh, never really evolved past that point but I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that captures better the strange like if people for people who like drugs and alcohol there's always a period in your life where you're really into it and you take a lot of pride in it and this movie captures so well like there's one bit where they're walking into a pub and uh, with Neil says, all right, so like first thing we're going to do, we go in, go in here, we're going to get wrecked. And then he has like this list of all these other things they're going to do. But like, you know, none of those things are going to happen because the first mm. thing on their to-do list is, oh, we're going in here and we're going to get wrecked. But I can yeah. remember that in college thinking like you would plan out your day almost like you're doing something like responsible and getting things done. Like, well, first we have to go to this bar and then we got to go buy some weed and then we're going to mm. like, you know, take shrooms and watch The Hobbit. And then we're, but you would like, you, you, it was almost like you were being productive, but you're, too, <laughs> you're being <laughs> anything but. And then when you see just the, the the wreckage in their sink and how there's matter growing in it, like matter, like where's it coming from? But just <laughs> it reminds me of like my shower, my fourth year in college. A buddy of mine and I, we we shared a, a bathroom, and about a month into school, suddenly there's all this like this pink goo all over the place, and I assumed it was like mm. some weird like hair product or soap that he was using, and he assumed it was mine as well, but it was just some sort of strange fungus that was growing because we were never cleaning the bathroom. And slow, and finally one day my mother came. She's like, "There is pink mold with black hair stuck in it all over your bathroom. Like we have to like call in like you know that the hazmat unit, etc." But it just reminded mm. me so much of just how you're completely willing to live in utter complete filth as long as you've got enough booze and enough weed or enough whatever to kind of get you through the day. I agree. I agree totally. And I think again, that's one of the things that that really appeals to people about the movie. Uh, Bruce Robinson says that it tends to be men who write to him about the film for whatever reason. It it, t- it tends to appeal to men more than women. Of course, women are perfectly free to enjoy it. Um, but it but it does seem as if it it taps into a, a male thing, which is that yes, when we're young. We do, you know, throw our clothes on the ground. We've got beer bottles stacked up on the windowsill. You know, we're surrounded by our own filth. Um, and, you know, we, we all hope that we can escape from that squ- squalor or we one day wake up and realize that we can't carry on living that way. Um, but we all certainly, you know, recognize that way of living and also recognize the aspiration uh, to, you know, to sort of wake up and do better. Um, but also, I, you know, I think there is something romantic about somebody who is just absolutely outraged that the world does not acknowledge their genius. <laughs> there, 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 there is something about that. Oh, yeah. There is something about that for young people. When so you're like young, young stand-up comedians, young novelists, young filmmakers, but they just yeah. cannot believe 
that just existing is not enough for the rest of the world to stand up and take notice of yeah. what a shining beacon of light they are. Like the, mm. that there actually is hard work involved as well. And it just, yes. it, it's, it's a crushing reality check when they realize the world is not going to give me a goddamn thing. I have to take it. But I guess there are some people where just they they fall backwards into greatness, but that's one in 10 billion. Mm. Yes. And it's that thing of um, wanting to take or achieve revenge over people who don't acknowledge your greatness. You know, there's the fantastic line, you know, when uh, they've been in, um, threatened by Jake the poacher in uh, the crow and crown which is the pub in the lake district and he's sort of screaming you know they'll all suffer i'll take the bastard axe to him i'm gonna be a star <laughs> you know stood on the side of a mountain with arms thrust open sort of like jesus i mean it's um wild but i i, I the, the more i watched it the more i realized that that really did does tap into something that a lot of young people have some people never let go of it um, and some people like Bruce Robinson, they just put in the graft, they put in the work and they achieve something, you know, and other people, they just give up and they just get on with a normal life. And some people just sort of, uh, you know, rail against the dying of the light, but never achieve anything like a, a Vivian McCarroll type of character. Um, so that there is something in there that is very, very appealing. If you watch all the documentaries about the film, the filmmakers themselves are slightly baffled as to why. It has captured public imagination. Yeah, Richard the way says, it has. wherever he travels in the world, people throw lines at him, and yeah. that's how he knew the film had taken on a life of its own. Where he would be mm. in the middle of fucking nowhere on the other side of the planet, and people would ask him if mm. he'd gone on holiday by mistake. He's like, "What?" Mm. Like it was just totally bewildering yeah. to him. So, I mean, but it is. Is this the most quotable movie to ever come out of Britain? Because I feel like you could, I, I know in one of the documentaries, they say there's like an obnoxious cult that's emerged of people standing around mm. in pubs pretending to be cool, quoting this movie. But if you are in that circle and you're wasted and you're smoking cigarettes and you've, it's almost like you're finding like a, a long lost brother that you never knew you had. And the same thing mm. happens with a lot of movies. If somebody whips out a line from Caddyshack, I immediately know to a certain degree we're going to get along, even if I know nothing else about them because they can quote mm. Caddyshack. But I imagine with mm. Withnail, there's got to be a, a kind of an, a special elite kind of secret society within pubs in the UK where people can quote this movie ad nauseum and feel like they've encountered, um, you know, the coolest secret society they've ever encountered. Yeah, I, it was funny. I was thinking about that. And I mean, the film obviously became massively successful towards the end of the 90s. And I think at that point, people probably were quoting it at each other. Um, and, and there's this sort of uh, mythical drinking game where you watch the movie and drink absolutely everything. I've got the list right here. And mm. it's, I don't think it's humanly possible, at least for me. But here's, a, what, <laughs> here's what, what, they, what they, the units total they consume. With Nils, mm. uh, he drinks nine and a half glasses of red wine, half mm. a pint of cider, one shot of lighter fluid, but you can substitute yeah. vinegar or overproof vinegar, rum, yeah. two and a half measures of gin, six glasses of sherry, 13 drams of scotch, and half a pint of ale. I mean, that is some serious drinking. <laughs> I mean, you can do it, but, uh, you know, you may never live to watch the movie again. You know, <laughs> that's... Uh, I mean, I think you could take even just like the 13 drams of scotch and, and you'll be, wow. you'd be good to go. But that, that is a fuckload of booze. You got to be a serious booze hound in order to try to pull that off. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to be a one of a kind to do that. So, yeah, there, there was there was the, the, the legendary and probably non-existent drinking game. I mean, you'd start that game, but you'd never finish it. Um, but I was, yeah, I was looking out to what, what sort of standard or rather the reputation of the film now and uh, with the 30 year anniversary it's it has popped back up again um 
In terms of movies that are as quotable, certainly during my formative years, which I think are sort of perfectly pitched for when the movie really became successful, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That'll do it. We, yeah. I quoted that backwards and forwards, left, right, and center. You know, the runaway, runaway, and the holy hand grenade and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I probably quoted that movie more than with Nail when I was a, when I was a kid. But what I wanted to sort of throw back to you is because I remember on previous episodes we a previous episode we did was about Alexander McKendrick and uh, the Sweet Smell of Success. And I would say in terms of like best screenplays, just purely for dialogue, to me, those two, like with Nail and the uh, Sweet Smell of Success screenplay, are probably the two line for line dialogue. They're probably the best two screenplays that I'm aware of. I don't know whether you what, what your feelings are about that. I guess when it comes to just sparkling dialogue, it'd be hard to find an equal to with nail. But if you want to look at structure or plot, I mean, mm. with nail and I is often pointed to as a point that, or an evidence that you don't really need a good plot to have a great movie yeah. because these, these two guys, they go to the country, they come back mm. and the movie's mm. over. So there's not a yeah. lot of material there, but it's just absolutely riveting every step of the way. But if mm. I'm looking at great structure and look at something like Lawrence of Arabia or something like that, like they're like Robert Bolt, obviously was a quite a different writer from Bruce Robinson. Yes. Mm. So it would, I guess it depends upon what flavor I'm in the mood for. But if I'm in the mood to laugh at charming characters, I mean, with Neil mm. and I might not have an equal, mm. at least in terms yeah. of writing. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the, the dialogue is very specific to each character. You you would you could if you were to read the script and you took away the names, you would know who was saying what. Oh yeah, like, all... if someone's saying you haven't got a chance, you know it's with Nail <laughs> screaming at yes. strangers and that sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And the dialogue, uh, it's. Um, you know, the, the way that the comedy is dealt with, I mean, it's it's it doesn't exactly have any jokes in it. The comedy uh, and this is something that Bruce Robinson was very clear on during production is the comedy comes from the characters. It's cumulative. It comes from the situation. There aren't actually any jokes. And if anyone laughed on set, he would demand a retake because he felt like they'd got it wrong because he felt that the characters should not know that they were funny. And he talks about, you know, seeing people in pubs, getting drunk, talking, and they're funny, but they don't have any idea that they're funny. You know, if you put them in a movie, they're funny. Sitting in the pub, they're not funny. So if anyone laughed, he would call cut and ask them to do it again. And it was much to the actor's chagrin. Um, but Richard E. Grant did say that he realized at a certain point that he needed to play with Nail as if with Nail had absolutely no sense of humor whatsoever. These people do not know that they're funny. Um, and handmade films really struggled with that. And uh, they wanted uh, they wanted Richard E. Grant to play up his role they wanted him to be a bit like Kenneth Williams from the Carry On movies. I don't know whether that translates over. We used over to, to your rent side. those videos at the yeah. video store. I worked in in college, but I never, I never mm. sampled them. Basically, ridiculous, over the top camp, very silly, um, and they wanted Uncle Monty to be a sort of. Oh, no, excuse me. They wanted Uncle Monty to be a Kenneth Williams type character, camp, gay, over the top. And they wanted Withnail to be a sort of Bertie Wooster type of character. I don't know if you're sort of PG Woodhouse. That I, I've read at least I read Carry On Jeeves and mm. what, I, read, I read a couple. And I had a great uh, collection of tapes of just some of the mm. short stories. And actually in London, summer 2013 or 14, saw a stage production of one of Woodhouse's short stories 
and it was pretty goddamn funny. But anyway, those they're, they're, those are deliriously entertaining short stories, but very yes. di- very different in tone. No, very different. They're very light, frothy. They definitely are jokes in there. Um, so he was very sort of anti anti that, um, and also um, uh, handmade. They wanted everything to be much lighter. I believe the first rushes they saw were the the shots from inside um uh the, the sort of hovel that they're that they're living in it's like when i have some uh, extremely distressing news like when we run out yeah, of wine what are we going to exactly. do about it <laughs> like, yes it's it, it's it's in it's so the shots from in crow crag and uh, they basically said it's too dark it's as funny as an orphanage on fire we you know we hate it and they immediately started trying to cut away at the film and they said we don't want the bull scene because there's a scene uh where with nail excuse me where marwood is menaced by a bull they didn't want that they wanted all the scenes uh, the sort of getting there and getting back all the motorway scenes they wanted those hacked away um so uh bruce robinson we're talking literally virtually day one you know they said we're over budget we're we're behind you know we need to start cutting the movie and he said well it's lunchtime on day one how can we be behind uh and he he said oh, that's it i'm i resign and richie grant clearly they who, must have read his book at one point at the end of the book with blows his fucking head off with a, with a rifle so like they they must have understood what they were getting involved with to a degree or they were just completely utterly clueless about just the nature of storytelling i think what happened was so that as i say the book had been written in the 60s and i forget the name of the guy but basically someone with a lot of money who got a hold of the book because it was wasn't ever published and it's not available to us we cannot find the book and read it as far as i'm aware um <clears throat> but basically the book was sort of bootlegged and was passed around friends and people who um didn't even really know bruce robinson would come up to him and say oh i've read your book it's hilarious and then one of those people said i will give you a couple of thousand pounds would you like to turn it into a screenplay so that happened and then one of the producers a guy called paul heller got hold of the screenplay and said um let's make it into a film and encouraged him to direct the film because he was a successful screenwriter at this point so he started turning it into a into a into a, a screenplay um and there excuse me he he so he was in place as the director uh, they had half of the money and then uh, the screenplay uh, went to handmade they really ummed and ahed about whether to make it or not and then apparently it got into the hands of George Harrison who read it on a flight to New York and said yes George Harrison gave his money, money to a lot of cool movies including like yeah. Life of Brian I mean Indeed. you could do the filmography of George Harrison as producer is a pretty impressive crop of films. And I love how they put uh, yeah. uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps into the flick toward the end. Just uh, the, the little flavor of George Harrison kind of sprinkled Indeed. in toward the, uh, the latter part that of the film. Cam- that was his cameo in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, the co-founder of Handmade Films was a guy called Dennis O'Brien, who um, didn't like the film, didn't understand the film, was trying to get the film basically finished as quickly as possible for as little as money as possible because they thought that they had a big fat bomb on their hands. And so he was causing all kinds of problems. And yes, Bruce Robinson said, I resign virtually on day one. And um, Richard E. Grant, who was nobody at the time, it was very interesting. It was his first movie. He'd had a TV series, a very small TV series released, or a TV special, I think, that also starred Gary Oldman. But basically it was a very small thing. So he was nowhere, um, and this was his first movie, and then he was very excited about it, and then all of a sudden the director's leaving and it's all falling to pieces. So he was very stressed by the whole situation. But, uh, I mean, talking about Richard E. Grant, if anyone has the chance, he he wrote a fantastic memoir called uh, With Nails, 
um, which is the story of with Nail and I, and then all of the doors that suddenly opened to him uh, following the movie. Because although yeah, he pops up in the player, he pops up in the pops everything. up in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Suddenly he was yeah. all over the place. Everywhere. He went from nothing to being absolutely everywhere. But there are all these funny stories about him. You know, he says, you know, he he was a uh, completely. He basically was Marwood himself. I mean, he was just waiting for the job to happen, talented, um, but it just hadn't happened for him yet. And he was—he talks about, you know, standing at uh, W. H. Smith's, the uh, the newsagents, uh, just reading the magazines um, with nothing to do um, and absolutely no money to do it with, um, and then you know this tv special it gets delayed for six months and then finally it's released and he gets an agent and uh is you know offered uh, or rather is offered an audition for this role and uh you know goes to bruce robinson's house and uh, bruce robinson says you know when he do- he he rehearsed the uh, kitchen scene and his delivery of the line fork it was exactly <laughs> the line that he had in his head exactly the delivery and he thought well i didn't want this guy this guy's not the, you know, he said he was fat and everything. He said he didn't want him. He, he, he describes him as a fat Dirk Bogard at that time. Which Richard E. Grant denies, but that's what Bruce Robinson says. Uh, but it, it, it's in his own book with nails. But what happened was he, he was uh, going nowhere as an actor. And he thought, if I put on some muscles, maybe people will start hiring me. So he took loads of sort of protein shakes gotcha. and things like that. Um, and with the intention of building up muscle, but he just got fat. And there's hilarious stories about him auditioning for the part of Frankenstein's monster and having to take off his shirt and show his torso. The and, Kenneth Branagh and, film, or no? It was for a, do- a documentary drama about, I, possibly about the book. Okay. Basically, they would have dramatic scenes in there. So he auditioned for that role. He auditioned for pantomimes and had to sort of. Uh, I think he says he sang the national anthem of Swaziland because he's <laughs> well, that's where he's born, right? Yeah, yeah, and he didn't get that role either. So he's a desperate, desperate actor. And then this this screenplay comes his way, and he, he reads it, and initially, well, he recognizes the name Bruce Robinson because he'd seen Romeo and Juliet. He'd seen the brilliant Francois Truffaut movie, uh, The Story of Adele H., which uh, was, yeah, it's a fantastic movie, and it was Bruce Robinson's shining moment as an actor. So he knew who he was, and I think the line in With Nails is uh, he didn't think this guy uh, could write anything but a uh, but a nursery rhyme to Narcissus. But then he he read it and was like, oh, my God, I, I have to play this role. And he says, uh, you know, he'd never come across anything that directly reflected his own state of mind at that time. Um, and Bruce Robinson says that the film really unlocked something in Richard E. Grant because Richard E. Grant uh, is verbally aggressive and he you know he's means he's saying this in a sort of an affectionate way but basically he's someone who is sort of snipes at his fellow thespians and all that sort of stuff and this movie really loosened him up and allowed him to accept that that there was that inside of him so it's this you know it's this thing of it's almost like a fluke you know this movie had a lot of luck and part of that luck is the fact that richard e grant who was an absolute nobody ended up playing this part and a part that you could almost imagine nobody else playing. Although during the audition process, what he says Daniel that Day Lewis also offered the part. Kenneth Branagh was up for it. Uh, Bill Nye was up yeah, I mean, for this it. This is when Kenneth Branagh was the king of, uh, of theater and had done Henry V. Yeah. I mean, he was exploding. Yeah. At the, he was a yeah. know, massive superstar. Yeah. So Richard E. Grant's going to the auditions. And as he's approaching the house, Kenneth Branagh's leaving the house. You know, and then the next day he approaches the house and Bill Nye is leaving the house. And then he hears that Daniel Day-Lewis has been offered the role. And, you know, but 
I mean, it was obviously meant to be. I mean, there's a venom in Richard E. Grant that I, I don't know if we ever see it again. Like when he says like two quid, like you can stuff him up your ass for nothing and fuck off while you're mm -hmm. doing it. He says it with so much malice and so much aggression. Yeah. And I, yes. I love evil humor. Evil humor just makes me just makes me feel warm and good inside. But God damn, it's almost like, has he ever been able to tap into that darkness ever again? Because obviously it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. And the, the part that's just written was so much, it's got a lot of rough edges to it. It really does, yeah. And actually the, the great thing that um, the Richard E. Grant says in With Nails is his mantra uh, that would kind of key him into the scene is, how dare you? You know, that was the thing that he just oh, said again oh, and again in his head. fucker said that? What <laughs> he turned <laughs> Yes, but his, but the, it's like the key into the role was how dare you? Gotcha. That was everything in everything about the the way that Withnail sees the world is how dare you? How dare you not do exactly what I want? How dare you? We want you the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here. We want them now. We want them now. Yes. Oh man! I mean, it's even small lines like uh, again, you watch it again and again, and these little gems come out at you, like uh, you know when he's they, they drive to Crow Crag in the Lake District. And he's got a terrible hangover and he says something along the lines of, uh, you know, I feel like a pig has shat in my head. But then when he gets out of the car, because they haven't brought any aspirins with, with them, he gets out of the car and you just see him say, there shall and must be aspirins. As if somehow, <laughs> somehow with, you know, his willpower and his, his hatred and his outrage, he can manifest these aspirins. And I, I just thought, yeah, it's a, I don't know, it's such a sort of layered, attractive glamorous horrible character and you know i mean he's a, a an icon of cinema isn't he with without now. without question and of course we haven't even mentioned <laughs> the fact yet that he's playing the most famous drunk in screen history and yeah. richard e grant famously is allergic to alcohol he can't drink he drank one time in preparation for the role and ended up like throwing up mm. all over the place mm. but the, it seems like the key to playing a great drunk as Bruce Robinson says, well, most drunks don't act like drunk idiots. They're trying to hold it together. They're trying to mm -hmm. pretend like they are sober. And that's mm -hmm. like the magic where, like, oh, officer, I've only had a few ales. And he's just, you know, bloodshot and pale and sweating. He's obviously been up for like 40 or 50 hours. But you're still trying to pretend as if you're totally dignified and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. But it, I'm just flabbergasted that Richard E. Grant somehow was able to play this part. This is like, I mean, it's a shame he never got to play Falstaff. He would have been a great Falstaff, but like, there's some great yes. drunk characters in dramatic history. But the fact that he was able to explore this persona, I guess maybe people who were lifelong drinkers aren't nearly as sophisticated and cool as they like to believe if somebody who's totally sober can read you and, and imitate it and recreate it with very little firsthand knowledge. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it is an incredible performance. I mean, the, you know, in terms of like other great drunk actors, the first thing I thought of when I heard Bruce Robinson say it's the greatest drunk performance I've ever seen was Chaplin. I think Chaplin is the greatest drunk actor ever, but he does exactly the same yeah, thing. 1 a.m., et cetera. Is, yeah. yeah, which we've discussed at, at length. But, indeed. Um, indeed we have. Indeed we have. But uh, it, it's that it is exactly the same thing. It's someone appearing ridiculous because they're trying to maintain their dignity and, and appear as if they're stone cold sober when they aren't. Um, but in terms of sort of boozing in the movie, I mean, you know, the, the Jake, the poacher character was played by Michael Elphick, who, uh, Eels pretty sort of leg. <laughs> exactly. But he was so drunk apparently that he didn't even know what movie he was in. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and this, no, this is actually true. And Bruce Robinson was running the camera, uh, and he couldn't, 
say cut he just kept saying no michael you're in the you're in the wrong movie you're telling you're giving me the wrong lines you're in with nail and i because he was in a different film at the same time and so they kept having to just like poke him back into with nail and i and eventually we got this uh incredible um powerhouse cameo uh yeah, he's got like pheasants with... under his jacket and eels down his leg, down his leg like, oh, this yeah. is for his pot and this is for my pot and uh, he's, yeah. he's, a, he's a great character and he's filled with so much menace but he's actually a mm. pretty good guy and he brings him that fucking chicken or is he, does he bring him the chicken or who brings him bring... i mean the way that i mean this movie is obviously not necessarily famous for a lot of dynamic camera movements however there's one mm. bit where the chicken has been unveiled and the camera kind of pulls back and you see Richard E. Grant's reaction to the chicken just sitting there alive. I mean, that's another bit that I just start screaming and roaring because they're starving, but they can't figure out how to make this chicken dead so they can eat it. And just their you know, total, complete desperation mm. of this movie, it just it makes me smile and giggle and laugh uproariously pretty much from start to finish. I, I mean, there are parts yeah. where it kind of slows down and you get sad but I, you're never that far away from just complete no. total mirth. I think one thing to say is animals were harmed in the making of this film. I mean, they, I think that the, the Michael Elphick, Jake the Poacher character, he really uh, does bash an eel's head in against the bar. I mean, I think they had to procure real eels to do that. And there are people these days who are keen on protecting eels. They're uh, Barry Diller, very famous uh, movie studio head mm. uh, from Hollywood, and, you know, ran Fox for a long time. He wanted to create basically this artificial island or construct on in the hudson river here in uh, manhattan mm. but they're in the because there's all these old piers along the western part of manhattan and most mm. of the piers are completely decayed and they've been gone for a long time but there's a community of eels that lives amongst the decayed rotten wood of this one pier and the society rose up to protect these eels and barry diller's mm. like 50 billion dollar project that he had put underway yeah got canceled outright so yeah there are people oh, out there really? who love to protect the eels Okay. I eat them. I eat them in Japanese restaurants. I'm not necessarily that attached to them, but... Okay. I've never had an eel. In fact, I'm a vegetarian. I should re- oh, reveal interesting. that. Oh, well, eels, if you ever eat an eel, mm. if you get it sushi, when they, when they prepare them on sushi, they cover it with like some sort of like syrupy glaze. They're, they're very sweet mm. and they mm. are exquisite. Okay. Yes. But yeah, th- this movie, I think, would would probably offend a lot of people. Um, and, and in fact, what they do to the chicken is pretty horrendous. Um, oh, the way they clean it is just, I mean, it looks like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It, it does. It does. And in fact, it was the chicken that gets killed within the movie. And Richard E. Grant talks about, you know, seeing this chicken and they, they have to do the scene with the chicken and the chicken was very well behaved. Uh, and then he went for a pee outside and he saw the chicken's head on the ground and, and then went back in and it was the chicken. Um, and he found that very difficult. And then there's obviously the hilarious image where they put the chicken into these, the oven like and it's, it's sitting sort of, on a little uh, throne, <laughs> sitting on a throne. It's pretty horrible. Uh, it's pretty horrible. Um, but you know, we, <laughs> we've mentioned Chaplin, uh, uh, Bruce Robinson. One of his favorite movies is the gold rush. And he, he did say that a lot of the stuff that happens at crow crag you know, I was talking at the beginning about things that subconsciously affect your imagination. Uh, he he says that uh, the gold rush heavily affected the stuff that happens when within. they're starving in the cabin toward the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see them put like with nails uh, boots into the oven. And I started thinking, oh, he's going to eat those boots. You know, those boots are going to get pulled apart and, the you know, the laces are going to get sucked up like spaghetti. Well, they're in like the <laughs> coldest, wettest, most horrible, muddy environment imaginable where there doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be any food anywhere like there are no restaurants or no pubs like it's just so complete utter desolation like 
I guess Monty mm. likes going up there because, as they say, Monty likes to bring, quote, his son from, from, from time to time. <laughs> Someone, and they're like, yep, that's, that, that's, that's Monty. He likes to bring his that's son up here. That's such a good line. And when he says, oh, yeah, that's him. Yeah. And he says, no, there's no uh, Montague, Montague H. Withnall, but there is a, and he comes up with some sort of French name. He was here with his son. Oh, yeah, that's him. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, Monty, the, I, don't, I don't know if I need, like, like I, I kind of need a whole extra movie just about Monty, but I guess we get Monty, just yeah. enough that it keeps us uh, excited for more. But watching like his ongoing uh, kind of, uh, I guess, like blood feud with the cat that lives in his home, that yes. always makes me howl. And just, die, he will die. <laughs> and then talking about flowers and how they're simply like, they're tarts, they're prostitutes for the bees. Yes. And it's just, yes. he is... He's just delightful. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of people today who would find a hundred thousand reasons to be offended by the portrayal of the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they're well within the rights to be offended. I'm not offended in the slightest because no. he makes me laugh just uproariously. But I think also it's not really offensive. I mean, I, I tussled with this as well. And I actually saw, I was talking about it earlier, the 30-year anniversary of the film and Bruce Robinson and Richie Grant came up and gave a talk. And Bruce Robinson said, oh, you know, there are certain things I'm slightly embarrassed about. Um, he didn't specifically mention Uncle Monty. I mean, there's no movie without Uncle Monty. But uh, he definitely was like, well, the film seems a bit old-fashioned now. But actually, to be honest, Monty is not a negative character at all. Um, he brings culture. He brings warmth. He quotes poetry. He brings comfort. He brings food. Um, they deliberately changed the lens on the camera when Monty comes into Crow Crag to broaden the image and to lighten the image. Um, they wanted to create this effect of him just bringing with him light and comfort and warmth and happiness. And that's very much in the movie. You know, they're, they're living in, they are living basically in the shack, the, cha the chaplain's living in, in, in the gold rush virtually. And then all of a sudden it's com comfortable. Yeah, suddenly and there's booze everywhere, there's vegetables everywhere. Paintings yeah. on the walls, it's nice. And he just wants, you know, to occasionally flirt with uh, Marwood. He's like, I, I hear you are a wizard in the kitchen. And just kind of always uh, yes. kind of leaning up against them and then kind of very slowly but subtly trapping him with like one arm on one side and then like placing another arm on the other side and Marwood will yeah. suddenly find himself kind of penned in. And I guess you could, some people say, oh, well, he's behaving in a slightly predatory fashion, but he's not, he's just, he's just hitting on him. It's the full court press. Sometimes you see people mm -hmm. who are trying to seduce somebody and he's under the impression that Marwood is batting exactly. on the same team. So he's That's just, the thing. yeah, he just, he just, he means to have him as he says in his own words. Even if it must be the <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, the thing is, with that, though, is the only reason the character is behaving that way is because he's been told by Withnail um, that he, he's a toilet trader. Yeah. That Was, is he, that a common expression in the UK? Because I've never heard it prior to seeing this movie. Let me put it this way. I, I understand what it is. I've never heard anyone say that line before, um, but I get what it is. Yeah. And of course, Marwood's sounds, he's very petrified about anal sex when he's like looking like I, I fuck arses when he sees that line in the pub, like earlier in the yes. movie. So it's already, it's yeah. already like looming large in his imagination that he does not want to be, mm. you know, taken in that fashion. No, he doesn't. But I mean, with nail as a character is deliberately winding uh, Monty up. I mean, one of the things <laughs> we haven't really, why that one of the things we haven't did, we haven't really talked about is uh is the the class structure in in the movie and with nail 
and maybe this doesn't completely translate over to an American audience. I'm not sure, but with well, the other the other place, yeah, like the boarding schools that they that they come from. They're they're from Harrow, and he's from, and they're lying and saying that Marwood is from Eton, which he isn't. Yeah, and Eton is like our equivalent of like St. Paul's or Exeter or Deerfield. Like we have these elite New England boarding schools that are basically feeders to Yale and Harvard and that sort of thing. And obviously, the UK's got those schools as well. They just have been around for like a thousand more years. I mean, the the Royals go to Eton in this in this country. I mean, it's it's you know it's um it's very very elitist um so there is this uh divide a, a class divide between them and so marwood is very much in thrall to with and monty and that's why he puts up with as much as he does because he feels inferior to them and he's he's young he's younger than both of them um so one of the things that happens within the movie is uh with and monty are talking in latin to each other so there is this definite divide between them. And I in the screenplay, the Latin is translated and it, they're playing cards. And uh, Monty says uh, in, in Latin, but he says he looks lonely, doesn't he? And uh, Withnail says perhaps he needs a queen to come to the rescue. <laughs> nice. Uh, because they're playing cards. And so basically Withnail is deliberately... Uh, Let's just say he's throwing uh, his friend on the hand grenade so that he can have access to free booze for a couple of days, and he's be- and and somewhere to live. Yeah, yeah. And I love exactly. how they've so, come up, they've cooked up this scheme where Withnail and Marwood are going to sleep together to protect Marwood from Monty. However, when it's time to go to bed, Withnail's like, "No, I want to sleep alone." Like he's kind of forgotten the whole plan. <laughs> yes, he totally yeah, yeah, yeah. betrays his friend. I mean, you don't want to talk about a, an unreliable uh, pal to have. I mean, Withnail, he's not going to stick to the plan. Whatever the case, he's going to stick to whatever no. provides him comfort. And pleasure in the short term and the, the kind of the rest can be damned and he enjoys lying to people and manipulating people i mean when eventually when marwood manages to escape from monty and this is the other thing we should say in the scene when monty threatens burglary upon uh, marwood when marwood eventually says oh no you know with nail and i it's a lie but he says you know with lovers we're obsessed with each other Monty immediately backs off. Absolutely. And, and he's actually and so, like overwhelmed with like emotion and I like, feel so much sympathy for him. Exactly. And so he's not really a negative character. He's been played in the same way that Marwood has been played. And, and the other thing I think it's worth saying is, you know, whatever your viewpoints about, you know, about the way these things are portrayed and people like to politicize these things now quite unnecessarily. Um, but, but, you know, the thing to say is that Bruce Robinson was someone who was preyed upon by a person who was older, more powerful, richer than him. And his way of dealing with that is to turn it into comedy. And I, I think it's unfair to say that, you know, this man can't deal with what happened to him in any way, shape or form. And if anything, yeah, he processed it into a very healthy, productive outlet and making he, he you know, movie gold. He did. And, you know, not everyone has to cast themselves as, as a victim. And Bruce Robinson has not done that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but he hasn't done that. And, and one of the problems we have now is we're being told how we should react to the things that happen to us. And so it's very interesting. I, I watched an interview with Bruce Robinson on YouTube and it was yeah, especially people who do not feel like victims being told by other people who are telling them that they should somehow fetishize their victimhood exactly yeah we have to behave the prescribed way so there were so many people at the bottom of this video where he's talked about this story with franco zeffirelli um you know saying oh how dare bruce robinson do this or how dare the interview do that and and neither of those people felt either of those things they were just dealing with something that occurred so i i think it's very un 
unfair to to judge the movie in that way. Also, people um, in the UK write in a humorous fashion about all sorts mm. of homosexual activities. I was reading Christopher Hitchens' book about his childhood, and he was talking about all the rampant, like heavy petting and outright just homosexuality going on in his boarding school that was just like described as the English way. And these guys did not consider themselves gay. Like they would just they would go on to have families and kids and that sort of thing. But I was like, God damn, there like, seems to be a lot of like upperclassmen kind of preying upon the younger class. <laughs> and then it's just everybody kind of just like accepts it and turns a blind eye to it. And it's like, God damn, these, these poor, these poor boys. But if are in the movie, if the Lindsay Anderson film, yeah, the yeah. upperclassmen are sitting around just joking and laughing about fucking the younger boys all the time. And some guys mm. are into talking about it. Some guys are not, but I think sometimes uh, people like to judge all morality from the perspective of the era in which they find themselves at this precise moment, and they have zero historical context of any kind. And uh, yeah, Mm. I I find nothing remotely outrageous about anything in this movie. No, I mean, I think it's a movie that could offend anybody if they chose to be offended. If you go looking to be offended, you will find offensive material in everything. Like people who go looking for racism, you are going to find racism. And I I feel like, or if you wish to see conspiracies in every shadow, guess what? Sooner or later, you're going to find conspiracies and i think people see Mm. precisely what they want to see i think that's exactly right yeah exactly right i mean people literally go out of their way to be outright outraged now it's uh, it's a sort of recreational activity but uh, they get a little jolt i mean uh, quite and i think if this movie was re-released now and was given a lot of fanfare it would probably happen to this movie but it's not fair i mean i think with this one for example you know the irish are not portrayed in a positive light um but uh, you know, Bruce Robinson talks about being threatened by drunk Irishmen when he was living in Camden in London. Um, it's, rep- it's it's reportage. This stuff happened to him. So, you know, he's not politicizing it. He's just putting it out there. And it, and it's funny. Um, I mean, there's some of the language. I mean, uh, you know, they refer this is probably going to offend people, but they refer to black people as spades. Now, you can't say that now, but in 60s London, that wasn't offensive. It was just a vernacular term. It's become offensive, but it wasn't offensive. And people at the used time. to say things, oh, I call it, if I see a spade, I call a spade a spade. I mean, it's in uh, yeah. Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. And, and the person's yes. like, well, I've never seen a spade. Like, But it's just, it's yeah. part, I mean, granted, that was late 1800s. But yeah, obviously, language changes. Language changes and our sensibilities change. And I, I mean, for someone you know, who has a sort of deep understanding of movie, you just watch something and you immediately contextualize it. And I think if you do that, with Widnail, it is it is one of the funniest movies ever made uh it has one of the best screenplays of all time i think it's one of the best first movies ever made oh without question i mean god well, damn. i mean there's like badlands is a good one obviously eraser head mm. is a good one mm. i'd say blood simple is a good one of course mm. there's the great citizen kane yes. uh, but do it. we mentioned before charles lawton night of the hunter is a great one blows. but yeah so there there are yeah, 400 blows uh, breathless there are a lot of great debut features out there mm. But with No and I, holy shit, I mean, th- from that period, late 80s, early 90s, in terms of like filmmakers to emerge onto the world stage, I mean, it's definitely kind of stands alone. And it is a tragedy, actually, that he hasn't done more. I mean, I think, I mean, he, I, I keep trying to say this, he, he isn't exactly a one hit wonder. He's written two very successful books, How to Get Ahead in Advertising um, is a good movie. Yep. Uh, I, I think one of the, the sad things about him in a way is that he did go to America. It's a shame that he didn't carry on working in, in the UK. I think there was more to come from him. Uh, Richard E. Grant says it's a terrible shame that he and I haven't made more movies together because no one can say his lines as I do, as Richard E. Grant that's does. Probably, and I think that's, that's probably fair. That, that, yeah. 
That's true. They were they were they were really good fit. Although who's the actor um, who plays Danny? He he delivers that dialogue pretty goddamn well as well. Like he has that strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you understand that that strange way of speaking? That uh, apparently Bruce Robinson said the thickest person he ever knew was some hairdresser who would say, yes. "Do you understand?" And so he basically had Do Danny you understand. Yeah, talk. It's yeah, almost like that, baby yeah. talk to a degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So, but it is a shame that he didn't make more British movies. He basically. He says that there just wasn't the money in in the UK to to do anything, and and how to get ahead in advertising, which some people prefer to with nail. I don't, but there are people out there who would say that. Um, that the problem with that movie is it was compromised through lack of budget. They halved the budget before they started shooting, and there were all these things that he couldn't do. Um, and uh, he apparently wrote an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's High Rise, which is, now is is a movie, but not his version of the movie. So he he did that. Of lots and lots of screenplays that he wrote that didn't get into production. He went to the US, made a movie called Jennifer Eight, starring Andy Garcia and Uma Thurman. And he says, well, he apparently hadn't done anything in a while, and his agent sort of buttonholed him and said, you know, have you got anything else on the go? And he said, oh, yeah, I've got this uh, thriller, but he didn't have anything. He just, he wanted to say something to his agent. Something that sounded so commercial, ag- yeah. So, yeah, so his agent set up a meeting with him. Uh, at one of the major studios and so he went along and literally on the flight he came up with the story and then pitched it and they said that's the worst pitch we've ever heard in our lives and kicked him out and then he went somewhere else he'd improved his pitch gave it and they said yes uh and then he changed his mind repitched and anyway came up with the story uh and was given the money to make the movie um it was miscast the, the lead character is meant to be in his 50s and they gave him sort of 35 year old andy garcia who's at that point was sort of one of the most you know, handsome men in film, uh, so completely miscast. Um, and because, you know, he was a, a, a small fish in a big pond, they didn't really let him do anything he wanted to do. So he says, you know, with Withnail, they, they tell him they're going to cut this and that. And he says, I'm going to resign. That's it. And they they let him have his way. When he went to the US, they've got so much more sort of clout than him. He's so insignificant. Um, that there was nothing he could do. And there was literally some, you know, executive producer or somebody said, uh, yeah, we're not going to let you have rain for that scene. It doesn't need rain. This movie's uh, dark enough as it is. And they just wouldn't let him do anything he wanted. He turned in the movie and then they made him cut sort of 15 minutes out of it, which sounds insignificant, but taking out those 15 minutes made the movie not make any sense. And he said, you know, I wrote and directed the movie and I don't know what the fuck it's about. I, I don't understand it. Uh, and it came out and it, it flopped. And he didn't make a movie until from 1992 till 2011. He wrote and directed uh, The Rum Diary, which is the Johnny Depp, uh, Hunter S. Thompson adaptation. And uh, it's kind of sad, really. He is probably in his, what, mid-60s, He's about 60-ish, 65 when that when that movie came out. Yeah, something like that. Um, and it doesn't really stand up. And I wonder whether it's too late do you know what i mean he spent a lot of time knocking back the red wine and yeah i mean there are some people who are very very talented but if they like to hang out in bars and restaurants and talk to people i was listening to a podcast recently where Betty Snellis was talking to the author of Mm -hmm. um bright lights big city i think his name is jay mcnearnan i I never quite know how to say it but he says they have a lot of friends in new york brilliant just really sharp people but he said they Mm -hmm. They ranted all of their great novels. They would sit around with all these other brilliant, talented people, getting totally shit-faced, having the most fascinating conversations in human history. 
but no one was writing them down. And it's no, kind of like no. they like it's like all their creativity went into those conversations and they just kind of mm. emptied the gas tank and there's nothing left for the books. And perhaps yes. Bruce Robinson has had a lot of the situations where the best dinner parties, the best cocktail parties, the best boozy kind of bonding sessions at the bar in human history. But sadly, they just haven't been committed to the page or to the stage. Well, that might that might be true. I mean, he has written 40 unproduced screenplays. Oh, that's a lot of scripts. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he's a, the poor man has been pounding away at his keyboard, but it just isn't getting into production. And there's a documentary about him called The Peculiar Memories of Bruce Robinson. And uh, the producer of The Killing Fields, who basically discovered Bruce Robinson as a screenwriter, says he's too good. He's just too good, you know, and... Uh, and his his work is too challenging and too unusual to find its way into production. And I just feel a, a little bit sad that, you know, it took nearly, what, 20, 20 years for a, a film of his to get to the screen. And it was kind of average. Yeah. You know, you can feel that it's Bruce Robinson. There are some really good lines in there. Like there's the line that I remember is a guy show. It's a Johnny Depp movie. Yeah, he, he's show. obsessed with Hunter S. Thompson. And there's in that weird Hunter S. Thompson connection through Ralph Steadman. Was it Ralph Steadman who did the poster art for With Nail and I? Is that, anyway, so it, it seems like they're all part of like the same circle to a degree. Yeah, and With Nail and I is very similar to Fear and Loathing. Um, but yeah, actually, uh, I mean, uh, Johnny Depp wanted Bruce Robinson to do Fear and Loathing, and Bruce Robinson said no because he was so sick at the time of making movies. Ooh, but you don't missed opportunities. I mean, Terry Gilliam yeah. did a good job, but... Bruce Robinson would have been much more ideally suited to the material. Yes, it's, it is exactly. It's a it's a very good directorial casting. So then anyway, Johnny Depp pursued Bruce Robinson and got him to do the rum diary. And he said yes in the end, because he said you can't say no to Johnny Depp twice. So uh, he, he made the movie. It does feel and sound like a Bruce Robinson movie, but it's it's kind of like a, almost like a pale imitation, but there are some really good lines. And the line that I remember is a guy shows Johnny Depp his penis and says, is it clap? And Johnny Depp says, it's a standing ovation. <laughs> and I thought, that's a, that's a Bruce Robinson yeah. line. That's a really funny line. So he has done, you know, he has done other things. And his recent book from 2015 is him busting the Jack the Ripper myth. And it's called uh, They All Loved Jack. Because he's a really obsessive, Bruce Robinson's a really obsessive guy. And he does a lot of research on his screenplays, which was the other thing that makes it very sad. I mean, he, he one of his early screenplays was called Fat Man and Little Boy about the atomic bomb. And they, they it was after The Killing Fields. It's the same writer-director team. And uh, he did, he read everything under the sun. And he discovered, to his, it's his belief anyway, that the CIA murdered the, the the mistress of Oppenheimer um, because they thought Oppenheimer was a communist and that his girlfriend was a communist or a Russian sort of letterbox and a spy. And and so he says that through all these different kind of mis, uh, misunderstandings, this poor woman was murdered. Um, and so his story was going to be a piece of, uh, uh, you know, it was going to be a, um, a re reveal the scandal. And uh, they did a completely different movie. And he says it's, you know, it's the biggest hole in his writing career. So his whole his whole career has been him pounding away at his keyboard, producing work. The work is there, but it just doesn't find its way to us. And I wonder whether one day it's a bit like a sort of J.D. Salinger situation. I remember I, I wonder whether one day, 20, 30 years from now, there'll be a massive, you know, release a publication of all these unproduced screenplays. I really hope so, because you're talking about this 
great writer, possibly a genius, who's only really ever had complete control over his work on film once, just once. And he made With Nail and I. It's a bit, it is really a bit like an Orson Welles situation. Absolutely, where it took a couple decades after Orson Welles' death before you had this pent-up desire to try and basically basically go in this like archaeological dig and find every last remaining scrap of footage he'd ever uh, attached his name to whereas in the like, 70s yeah. and 80s it was considered like stuff for like the garbage heap and of course it just it took a long time for people to get up to speed like oh well let's try to reassemble the other side of the wind or let's try and find the remaining fragments of Don Quixote and mm. I, I would love to see that if you just have this you know society of film buffs who just wants to read 30 or 40 unproduced brilliant screenplays because the mm. lines of dialogue I mean I, this is probably I know people get annoyed by how often this movie is quoted, but stuff like uh, if I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumor was a birthday <laughs> present. I mean, yeah. it's one of those lines where probably people have quoted it too much, but that comes from a very special, deranged place. And do you, as we start to work our way down toward the, the end of this episode, do yeah. you have any favorite lines that you want to act out for us here on the podcast? I mean, I don't know. I'm not a thespian, uh, but... Um, the line that I remember when I watched the movie for the first time was, I demand to have some booze. Uh, that one stuck in my head. Um, but watching it again and again, it's, um, he's going into your room. It's you he wants. <laughs> Offer him yourself. And, and the little hand motion, offer him yourself. Oh, that man. is absolutely hysterical. I've, I mean, I've, in the build-up for this, this podcast, I've watched the movie over and over again. I've read the screenplay. The screenplay is a work of art, by the way, because it was based on a novel. A lot of the sort of screen directions have obviously been lifted from the novel. Um, there's a great line in the screenplay about Danny the dealer, and it says he takes off his sunglasses, and uh, if, Fritz, if Fritz Lang was still alive, this man would be a star. <laughs> Which I thought that's a, that's a really good line, but uh, there's so much devastation um, around his eyes when he takes off those yeah. glasses, and he's like, "Very oh. foolish words." <laughs> I think Very my favorite exchange might be when they are talking about what's his name, and neither yes. one knows who the other's talking about. And finally, uh, Richard D. Grant just says, "Like, uh, um, oh, oh goddamn, I, ha I have it written down, but then I think I lost it." He says, "Well, neither have I." What the fuck are you talking about? And it, just, it brings yes. the conversation to a close, but yeah. they're just speaking at cross purposes, and neither yes. one of them is really making like an impression on the other, and they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. And that that exchange, for whatever reason, always makes me just about shit Hilarious. my pants. But also, that's the thing, isn't it? It's not about jokes. And, you know, I was saying Richard E. Grant decided to play the character with no sense of humor. That is played completely naturalistically. They are not overplaying that at all. Neither of those people realize that they're funny. They are not playing that scene for laughs at all. And they're just happy accidents. Like when he turns around and he's got a piece of pie stuck over his, over his teeth. Like Bruce Robinson didn't write that. Richard E. Grant didn't even no. plan it. But he's just he's no. munching on this giant piece of pie. And when he reacts, he has this grimace of terror. And it's just a huge chunk of food <laughs> stuck in his mouth. And it's, it's, it's almost like slapsticky. But they didn't set out to do that. It was just a wonderful, happy accident. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very verbal script, but there is some good slapstick in there. I mean, I've mentioned the, uh, you know, shooting the shotgun while they're trying to get fish. Uh, I mean, that's absolutely hilarious. But I can totally sympathize. As someone who's not good at hunting nor good at fishing, but I've done both a lot, so I should actually have some degree of skill in both uh, vocations. Mm. I am often, like I went fly fishing one time and I got stung by a bunch of bees and I couldn't figure out how to tie mm. the fucking flies and I sucked at the casting and I was like, I just want to get something out of the water in my bag on my back. And so yeah, you, you are tempted just to whip out the shotgun and lay waste to those fucking trout. <laughs> 
throwing a stick of dynamite something absolutely like that. I, 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 for me i just want the kill i don't care about the artistry and the craft <laughs> of like the, the thrill of the hunt mm. but don't you think it's an incredibly poignant film isn't it that's the thing it's a very sad movie and the last scene or one of the nicest things i read is the last scene is like the last scene of brief encounter you know the the goodbye and it is like that you know and one of the appeals of the movie is that we probably have all been in the situation where either a friend has left us behind or we've left a friend behind you know it's time to move on and you've had all these incredible experiences but it's over and it's gone and, and I'm gone. And, and th that last scene where he just says, you know, I'll miss you with no. And, and but he seems very blase about it. And with has got tears in his eyes. I'll miss you too. Chin chin. It's uh, God, man, it's, it's uh, devastating. And, and you end up just wondering what the hell is going to happen to this poor, this poor drunken sod, you know, not much. It's going to be a lot more of a, uh, yeah, speaking shakespeare to the animals in the park and that sort of mm. thing i think yeah his fate will be a sad one wherever it ends up which is i guess it's yeah. beautiful that we leave him while he's still young because you don't want to see what the future might happen. hold for him yeah and he just walks away in, in the rain as the camera sort of pans upwards it's um my goodness it is a devastating ending and i think that is that is ultimately why the film has lasted the way it has it has this through line of just of sadness you know that this uh you know the affair is going to come to an end it is it is it is sad absolutely well i can't think of a a more poignant note to end this episode on <laughs> than your description of that scene so before we draw to a close though where can people find your podcast where can people find your book where can people find your writing give us the the full stephen saunders kind of output where where can people find all your material yeah sure uh, my my personal twitter is at that sj saunders the film uh, podcast, which we haven't really discussed, uh, is called The Film Connection. It's at Film Connect Pod. And basically, I, I talk about um, mo I, basically what you do in one three hour podcast, I do over about 10 podcasts. So I just do a movie at a time um, and get very indulgent. So the one at the moment is about Robin Williams, who is someone I grew up loving um and felt very obviously devastated you know when, when he passed away um and uh, there are three out there at the moment uh one on popeye one uh oh fuck this is what you know i've been drinking red wine or fittingly you've been drinking red wine all the way through this podcast uh yeah so anyway there's one on moscow on the hudson which is a very good uh, paul mazurtsky movie there's one on the world according to garp which is a really good movie uh we've got one coming up which i will eventually get around to editing uh, on the fifth i've got i've got all my stills and clips ready to go oh, whenever, whenever, whenever you unveil it yeah no it's 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 gonna drop soon uh and yeah so there's that coming up um and the book as we said earlier, it's called Into the Hour of Magic. Just go on Amazon and type in Into the Hour of Magic and you will find it because there is nothing else called that out there. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it, to be honest. Excellent. Well, I always love and adore getting to hang out with you, talk with you. I'm sorry I yes. wasn't able to drink as well. Actually, last night, my whole family's in town. We were celebrating the arrival of a, of a new nephew and we, mm. we were drinking some scotch. And then when I got home, I smoked a little ganj. So I was, I was nice. a little hungover and fatigued from imbibing so maybe that kind of 
impacted or kind of like was able to kind of imbue our conversation. But I'm at the beginning of my day, so I, I need some, some sobriety to, to get me to help me carry on <laughs> for the rest. But the next time I promise if we tackle a, a topic with alcohol involved, I will get properly sloshed with you. But I would love to get you also on my YouTube channel for a live stream yes. on an appropriately British topic at some point down the road. Maybe we'll do fucking Monty Python, do like a Life of Brian and the I'd love Holy Grail that, double yeah. feature or something like that. That could be uh, that could be a lot of fun. Because we talked about doing um doing Terry Gilliam and I actually think a sort of hors d'oeuvre for Terry Gilliam would be Monty Python. Yeah, because he was part of the part of the crew. It's, on, it's only it. a model, as he once said. And he, <laughs> and he co-directed, obviously, um, um, Holy Grail. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, all the animation yeah. is his. He, he is he's a legit animator. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this podcast. If you haven't seen With Them and I, pop it in. You will just have the time of your life. It is an ageless movie, and it, it quite literally just it gets better with each each successive it viewing. It's why there's a reason why people have watched it fifty or sixty, seventy times, which might sound ridiculous. Mm. But it does just keep becoming more poignant, more magical, more hysterical. It's just a, it's a, it's a one of a kind flick. But uh, please leave us a rating review on iTunes. You can find me on my personal profile on Twitter at Colbrax. And if you want to see my big bald dumb head talking about TV and film, you can find my YouTube channel Geeking with James Hancock. But thanks so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow.